You know, if you think about it, life is really kind of monotonous. And, and most of life, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, ordinary, mundane. We kind of do the same thing every day. I mean, we get up, we eat breakfast, have our quiet time, maybe have a quick exercise, clean up, go to work, work till lunch, eat lunch, go back to work, work till dinner, eat dinner, go home, do what you do, watch TV, spend time with the family, read, whatever, go to bed, get up the next day and do it all over again. That's pretty much how life works. But have you noticed that in the midst of the mundaneness of life, there are some wow moments that have been sprinkled in? Have you noticed, Do you know what I mean by wow moments? We're talking about this group today, 83 people in Israel, and they are having a wow moment, not just every day, but multiple times a day. When we go to Israel, one of the wow moments for me is waking up on the Sea of Galilee, opening the curtains, going out on the balcony, and you're seeing the Sea of Galilee. You think, man, I can't believe that is the actual Sea of Galilee. And then to go to the Jordan River and be baptized where Jesus was, it is a true wow moment. I can remember one year we were there and our guide said, hey, we want to take you all to a new place to have lunch. It's a really good place right on the Sea of Galilee, or just off the Sea of Galilee, actually, and it serves fresh fish, and it serves pizza. I thought that was a strange combination, pizza and fish. And so we got in there, and they're taking our orders, and I'm thinking, I want some of this fish. I mean, we're in, on the Sea of Galilee, and it's called St. Peter's Fish, because Peter was the fisherman and so on. And so I said, I want St. Peter's Fish, and stood there talking to everybody at my table, and they finally brought it out. And it was not just a piece of fish. It was a fish with an eyeball in it, still in it. And I said, wow, I should have ordered the pizza because I've messed up ordering this. But the whole trip, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, the Via Dolorosa where he carried his cross, to stand at Golgotha and think, wow, Jesus Christ died here to pay for my sins. And then the climax, the apex of the trip is to walk in that garden tomb where Jesus was buried, but thank God three days later he walked right out. And to think, wow, I can't believe that I'm really here. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, I want us to see one of the most amazing wow moments in this entire book. And we find it in chapter number 10. But before we get to the wow moment, I want you to go back to chapter number 8, and I want us to refresh our memories. Some are visiting today, and you weren't here with us last week. And if that's the case, we're glad you're here. And we're studying through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. And we've come to the point now where we're studying the period called the Great Tribulation. It is a future event. This hasn't happened yet. It will last for seven years. It will happen on the earth. And what it is, it's a time when God is going to judge and pour out actually His wrath on those who've never been saved and whose sins have never been forgiven. And we've been studying about this tribulation. In fact, we pick up in chapter 8 in verse 1, and it says, When Jesus opened the seventh seal, you remember Jesus took from the hand of God the Father a scroll, and that scroll had seven seals. And Jesus is opening those seals, and now he's opening the seventh seal, and it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And John said, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. In front of the throne of God, as we said last week, there stand seven angels. And during the tribulation, each angel will be given a trumpet. And each angel will blow that trumpet in succession, and those trumpets announce 
the next judgment that is coming on the earth. Then another angel, verse 3, uh, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And we saw last week how these angels blow, blew, will blow their trumpets. And the sound of their trumpet announces the judgment that is to come. And the trumpet judgments are really what we could think of as the judgment of thirds. Because the first angel blows his trumpets and a third of the vegetation is destroyed. Second angel blows his trumpet, a third of the ocean turns to blood. Third angel blows his trumpet, third of the rivers and lakes becomes bitter. Fourth angel blows his trumpet, and the sun, the moon, and the stars each lose a third of their light. And so it's the, trump, it's the, the judgment of thirds, really. And then when we come to chapter 9, we read about the fifth trumpet. And last week we covered this, but I didn't spend much time on it. I was moving at a pretty quick pace. I want to go back and just highlight a couple of things that I didn't mention last week. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and John said, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And so this star is different from other stars that have fallen from the heavens at this point because this star is referred to as a hymn. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This star was most likely a fallen angel. Remember when Satan rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels fell with him. They had followed in Satan's rebellion against God. So this is either a fallen angel or maybe Satan himself. If it's not Satan, it is an angel who has great authority because he has the key to the bottomless pit. And we saw last week how when that bottomless pit, the abyss, was open, that locust, these are demon spirits who are living in this bottomless pit. Even now, today, somewhere below the earth, there is a bottomless pit. There is an abyss where demon, fallen angels, the worst of the worst, live. One day, that pit will be open, and those demons will begin to come out, and they'll come out in the form of locusts. And these locusts, these demon-inspired locusts, will, will have the power of a scorpion. And they will have stings or stingers with them. And they will go out and inflict pain on people for five months. That's what we read. They will not have the power to kill anybody, but they will have the power for five months to inflict great pain on everybody who doesn't have the mark of God on their forehead. Now, in verse number 13, we read about the sixth trumpet. And it says, the sixth angel sounded... And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now let's stop right there. Who are these four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates? Well, these are fallen angels. Why do we believe that? Because nowhere in Scripture do we ever read that holy angels are bound. 
Holy angels are not bound. They are flying around heaven. They're above the throne of God. They're in front of the throne of God, around the throne of God. They're worshiping God. Holy angels are not bound. It is the fallen angels. Many of them have been bound. Some in the bottomless pit. And we read here, these four angels are bound at the Euphrates River. These are four of the vilest of the vile of the fallen angels, the most wicked of the wicked. One pastor says these are the filthy four, and they have been bound at the Euphrates River until the appointed time when this other angel would release them, and they would go, and they would begin to wreak havoc on the earth. Verse 15, so the four angels who had prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So these angels are so powerful that they will lead in the destruction of a third of the population of the earth at this particular time. Verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now I didn't comment much on this last week. But when John is having this vision and these four angels have been released at the Euphrates River, remember the location of the Euphrates River is significant throughout the scriptures. In Bible times, the Euphrates River is where, where Old Testament Babylon was. Modern day Iraq is there on the Euphrates River. And so we're not far from the nation of Israel. So Euphrates, we read about it, the beginning of the Bible, read about other key places. It is the largest river in Western Asia. And it is at this strategic place that these angels, these fallen angels have been released and they inspire a 200 million man army to come against the nation of Israel. Now, it's easy for us to read 200 million people in an army. We kind of read right past it. But folks, there's never been an army quite like this army. Now, it is true in 1961 that there were an estimated 200 million armed and organized militiamen in China. Think about that. That's back in the 60s. According to the Associated Press, in the 1960s in China, 200 million militiamen. But they weren't going into battle quite like this army. The number is staggering. Keep in mind that the population of the United States is only 327 million. So this army will be more than half the size of our entire country. Our army, which is the strongest, really the strongest military in the world. Did you know that today we have 1.3 million active troops? Approximately 865,000 reserve, reserve troops. So you add that up, you're still just a little bit over 2 million. This is 200 million. Now what's interesting is we're trying to figure out where, who is this army? Where are they coming from? Are these the militiamen from China? Maybe, maybe there are some coming from China. In verse 16, it says the number of the army. Now I'm reading out of the New King James and it says it's singular there, army. In the Greek, it says armies. If you have the New American Standard, it brings it out in the plural. And so this group, this gathering of 200 million troops is not just from one country. It is from different countries. It is from different regions sur surrounding the Euphrates River. And what the, these are the neighbors now of Israel. And presumably they have joined forces to come against Israel and a third of the earth's population at this time will be killed. But nonetheless, it is a staggering, staggering thing. Now, 
At the beginning of the message, I said, we're fixing to see one of the wow moments in the Bible, and we are when we get to chapter 10. But I spent that time in chapters 8 and 9 to say that the setting of the wow moment is extremely important. Because if we don't understand the setting, we won't fully appreciate the wow moment. The setting is one of chaos. Think, use your brain, what is happening on the earth or what will be happening on the earth at this time. Vegetation struck. Waters in the ocean turn blood. Fresh waters become bitter. The sun, moon, stars lose a third of their brilliance. Locusts coming up from the bottomless pit, causing great havoc for five months. All these things that are happening now, 200 million man army that is coming against the people of God. So it is in, a, in the midst of this chaos that we come to chapter 10 and we read what John saw in the midst of chaos and it brings great comfort to us. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. John said, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now the question is, who is this mighty angel? There are some who say this angel is Jesus. Because the description we just read here, it sounds kind of like Jesus. And it sounds like the vision that John had of Jesus back in Revelation chapter 1. But I don't believe this mighty angel is Jesus for two reasons. First, I think it would be odd at this point during the tribulation for Jesus to return to the earth. In other words, it wouldn't make sense to me for Jesus to come back to the earth before the second coming. That would be strange. But you could argue that one way or the other. The real reason I don't believe it's Jesus, if you look back in verse 1, John said, I saw still another mighty angel. Underline that word another. In the Greek language, it means another of the same kind. In chapter 8, John had been telling us that he's seen these, these seven angels. And then he saw another angel. And now he's saying, then I saw another angel, just like these angels. Except this angel was even mightier. So we don't know if this was Gabriel or Michael or some other. We don't know which angel, but it's a high-ranking angel who's come down from heaven to earth, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. And it says, and he, was, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices now when the seven thunders uttered their voices I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So it's interesting to me. In the midst of this time of unparalleled chaos, God gives John a vision of an angel descending from heaven, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. And the question is, what is the significance of this vision? 
What is the message that heaven is communicating to John? And even more importantly for us, what is God's word to us today? And in a nutshell, this is the message. This is the sermon in a sentence. And this is what we all need to take with us today. God is saying to us that in the midst of unthinkable chaos, God is saying, remember, I am still very much in control. You see, when this tribulation is going on, it looks like the devil's in control. It looks like things have completely spun out of control. But this angel comes down to the sea and to the earth, stands on both as God's way of saying the devil's not in control, the Antichrist is not in control, the demons are not in control, the locusts are not in control, nature is not in control. God is saying, even now I am in control. And the relevance to us is this. Hey, look, folks, in all of our lives, we have chaos We have crises. We have things we go through that we don't understand. It seems like things are falling apart. And God put this chapter in the Bible to remind us if he will be in control during the tribulation, rest assured he is very much in control of your life right now. Now, that doesn't mean we understand everything. John had this vision. He he heard these seven thunders. But God said, or the angel said, nope, you're not allowed to write that down. You can't tell what the thunders are. When we get to heaven, we'll know. But it's been sealed for us right now. But there will come a day. And so many times in our lives, we go through things. Circumstances happen. Things turn against us. Maybe people turn against us. Maybe our health fails us. Maybe our job, we lose it. Or maybe our our finances disappear and things happen. Maybe maybe it's not those type things. Maybe it's a a broken heart from a a relationship that didn't work out. Or maybe it's a spirit of of anxiety or depression that has set in. Chaos comes in all shapes and sizes. But what God is saying is that He is very much in control of your life right now, regardless of what you're going through. You may not understand it. I may not understand it. God understands it, and He is very much in control. And so that's the first message. God is in control. You believe that? Say amen. Now, the second message, and we get this beginning in verse 8, is that in times of great chaos, not only is God in control. Now, that's good to know that God's in control. That's very good to know that. But God's Word can change our life. In other words, in the Bible, God didn't give this book to us just so a preacher would have something to preach from or so a teacher would have something to teach from. God gave this book so we would have in our hands a recording of His words to us And even though the Bible was written a long time ago, remember what it says about itself. This book says that it is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the only book that you read that has life in it. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, are all through the pages of Scripture. So that you can read a passage of Scripture that was written, for example, by David or by Moses or by John or by somebody a long time ago. And yet God can take what they wrote in that context and apply it to you in your context, what you're going through in life. Now, this is interesting in verse number 8. It says, Then the voice which I heard, John said this, from heaven, spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went and to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat. And it will take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. 
Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, this is a strange thing. John now sees in this angel's hand a scroll. This is the word of God. That's what that scroll represents. And God said to John, go back to that angel and, and ask for the scroll. And he did. And he ate the scroll. And as it, we read here, when he first ate it, it tasted sweet. But when he kept chewing it, and then when it went down and he digested that word that he had read, and that, that word got down in his stomach, we would say, it became very bitter. And that says to us, the word of God is both. It is sweet and it is bitter. You know, many times when we're reading our Bibles, we're looking for the sweet part of the Scripture. And there's a lot of sweetness in here. For example, you know, God promises to forgive our sins. He promises to meet our needs. He promises to never leave us. He promises to work all things together for good if we love Him. So there's a lot of sweetness in the Bible. And sometimes we can be so... Uh, blessed by the sweetness in God's Word that we almost use some of these verses almost like refrigerator magnets. And there's nothing wrong with putting a verse of Scripture on your refrigerator. It's a good thing to do. But we have to remember this. Not every verse in the Bible uh, would we want to probably have as a refrigerator magnet. Because there are some verses in here that are not sweet. They're bitter. They talk about the judgment of God. That's not sweet. The wrath of God. They talk about hell. This is not sweet. This is not something that we would want to put up on the refrigerator. And yet it's all part of the Word of God. And what we're learning here from John is that as we take God's Word and we begin to digest God's Word, we treasure that which is sweet. But we have to pay attention to that which is bitter because through the bitter words in Scripture, God is in the process of getting our attention. And God is saying, you need to think about what you're reading because if you'll think about it, it will change how you live your life. Now, I wrote down three little phrases as I thought about John eating this book because remember, after he ate it, it's sweet, then it's bitter. And again in verse 11, the angel said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So in other words, after you have read the Word of God, now he's saying, go out and serve me, God is saying. He says to those of us who are preachers or Sunday school teachers or connection group leaders, before we stand in front of a group of people to try to teach someone else what the Word of God says, before, for example, I do that on Sunday, I have to make sure on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that I have been in the Word of God, not just preparing sermons, but saying, God, what do you have to say to me? God, speak to me. God, convict me of sin. God, reveal your will to my life. God, show me what you want me to do. Because if we have not received God's Word ourselves, we're hypocrites to try to pass it on to others. But once we have received the Word of God, once we have been changed by the Word of God, then we can go out and begin to share God's Word with others. And so these three phrases I wrote down last night, and I think these will be easy to remember. Here's what you have to do with the Word of God. You have to take it in through Bible reading, through listening to sermons, watching on TV or radio or Sunday school class. You take it in. You think it through. Now, there's where we're weak sometimes. And then you live it out. You take it in, you think it through, and you live it out. Most of us, we're in such a hurry, when we read our Bibles, we read our passage for the day or our chapter for the day, and we read it. Uh, so we, we took it in, 
But before we think it through, we close the Bible and go on about our day. You can't, you can't grow like that. The Bible, we're much wiser to read less and think more. So take it in, think it through, live it out. Say that with me. Take it in, think it through, live it out. Let's say that again. I think we can do better. Take it in, think it through, and live it out. Makes me look like I'm crazy if I do that, right? That's not what I'm saying. We think it through. We mull it over. We take it in. We think it through. God, what are you saying? What are the ramifications of this? God, we're in a bitter part of Scripture right now. We're reading about a time when the key to the bottomless pit will set free these demonic spirits upon the earth. God, this is not, this is not pleasant. This is not happy. This is not sweet. This is bitter. God says, yes, it's bitter. And I want you to think it through. And I want you to think about how that should affect your life. First thing we should do is to ask ourselves, God, am I going to be living when this happens? Do I know for sure that I'm saved? Do I know that my sins are forgiven so that I'll be spared this? And then, God, now that I know I'm saved, how about my family members? How about my friends? How about my neighbors? You see, if we would take it in and really think it through and just think, you know, it's possible that my coworker, my spouse, my child, my parent, my sibling, my friend, it's possible that that person I'm going to school with is not saved, which would mean if they're still living after the church is taken up in the, in the rapture, this is what they're going to be going through. And what I'm saying is it would change how we live. And then we could begin to share Christ with them. And then we would, ha- I don't mean jam the Bible down their throat, but just say, hey, listen, man, the most important thing in life is not how much money you have or how many homes you own. The most important thing in life is that you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus is in your life. So we have to think it through. We take it in. We think it through, and we live it out. Now, let's practice this today on the one main truth I'm trying to communicate from this passage of Scripture. Use it in your mind. I wish I would have thought to have put this on a screen, a picture of an angel on the screen. But just in your mind, in the midst of a chaotic environment, picture an angel, his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, Heaven's way of saying, even now, God is in control. So the lesson I'm trying to teach today is that no matter the chaos, God remains in control. God is in control. You go from here today, somebody says, what was the sermon about? You can say, well, we're studying through Revelation. Boy, it's going to be bad, but we saw about this big angel coming down from heaven Land, foot on land and sea. But the lesson John was teaching today, the truth of that angel, God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Now, you believe God's in control? Say amen. You believe that before you came to church. You believe that when you went to bed last night. You could have slept through the service today and you still would have believed God was in control. Now, I'm glad you didn't sleep through it. But I'm glad you came. But you already knew that before you came to church. I'm not telling you anything new. But here's what I believe. I believe the biggest challenge in the Christian life is to take that truth and apply it to our circumstances when they become chaotic. You see, we all know God's in control. If we're in a test, true or false, God is in control, true. But when we get out there in life 
And things begin to go crazy and, and things begin to happen that we don't understand. And God is silent and he appears that he doesn't care. And we think, God, how could you have allowed this into my life? In our minds, we need to see this angel and we need to be reminded that even now God is in control. And apply that to our life. See, if we'll take it in, we know God's in control. That's what we take in. But now we begin to think that through. Say, God, if you're in control, we believe that. Scripture teaches that. That means you're in control of my health. You're in control of my finances. You're in control of my family. You're in control of my future. You're in control of all of it, God. So what I've got to do is take this truth that I've believed for a long time, and I've got to do a better job applying it to me. The bridge between information... And transformation is application. And so many times we want the information and we want to be changed. We want the transformation, but we fail to walk across the bridge of application. So application says, okay, the information is God's in control. I've got to apply that to what I'm going through, okay? I'm thinking that through, I'm beginning to apply that. Now, if I apply that, I'm thinking it through, now I can live it out. Now I can go from here today and say, you know what, if God's in control, if God's going to be in control during the tribulation, God is certainly in control during this problem I'm going through in my life. So I apply that, and then I experience transformation. Then I begin to live it out, and then I become a, a completely different person. So we take it in, we think it through, and we live it out. Now, it's interesting. Last night I was finishing this sermon about 10 o'clock and I thought I just had a feeling I thought now God I know I did a poem last Sunday and if I do a poem again this Sunday the people are going to get tired of it because it'd be two Sundays in a row where I did a poem and I thought but God I don't really care because I'd like to do another one (laughs) and so I said I'm going to just sit down here and see if I can get one going and if it happens it happens and if it doesn't it's not the end of the world so I I got a little poem and I want to just say before I read this I promise you no more poems this year okay I promise you now maybe around Christmas if I got really inspired I might make one exception but I doubt it this is probably the last poem but I want you to listen because I was thinking last night God we're going through Revelation. This is some heavy material. But we've come now to a part, even though we're in the tribulation period studying it, that there's some really good application that we can apply to our lives easily today in the midst of our chaos. And so I, I just said, God, if I could just somehow put it in a, just plain English. And so I called my little poem, Chaos. Now remember, it was getting really late last night, so if some of this doesn't seem right, just cut me a little bit of slack, okay? Chaos is the name of the poem. Chaos is a part of life with our hustle and bustle, with our stress and our strife. We live on an imperfect earth. We've known this is true from the day of our birth. Chaos comes in every shape and size. If we could learn how to deal with it, we would win a great prize. We would be at peace amidst life's storms if we could handle the chaos in all of its forms. While the categories of chaos are not always easy to see, In this little poem, I'll focus on three. First, there's the chaos we bring on ourselves. If our life's a library, we have too many shelves. Our pace is too fast. Our schedule's too busy. We run and we go and we make ourselves dizzy. We go faster and faster to keep up with others. I'd slow life way down if I had my druthers. God's given enough time to get done in a day what he'd have us accomplish before we hit the hay. That was my favorite line in the whole poem right there. I thought that was pretty cool. Hit the hay. I thought it was good how that came in. 
when we add to our plates more than we can gracefully do, we bring on the stress. We all know it's true. So learn to say no. Don't spread yourself too thin. Take time to relax and try to stay in. The second type of chaos that we often face is brought on by others who don't give us much grace. They expect more than we could possibly do. We just can't please them. This problem's not new. Sometimes other people try to control how we act. It's sad if you think of it, but it's really a fact. So in your dealings with others, be loving in all that you do. But at the end of the day, to thine own self be true. Don't compromise your convictions just to appease another. Whoever would expect that is not a true sister or brother. The third type of chaos we encounter in life comes from the circumstances that bring us such strife. The death of a loved one, the loss of our health, the termination of a job, the disappearance of wealth. There are so many things that cause our hearts to break. We cry and we weep, we tremble and we shake. When someone close to us is taken away, we don't see how we'll make it another single day. But as time goes on and our hearts begin to heal, we learn from experience that our God is real. He mends and repairs every broken heart. He keeps our minds and emotions from completely coming apart. He's our sustainer when life becomes tough. His grace is sufficient. It's more than enough. I hope the meaning of this poem is becoming clear. In the midst of life's chaos, God is always near. So don't despair or give up. And don't ever quit. Keep moving forward. Prove your faith is legit. A wonderful Christian lady from so very long ago said it better than I could. And I wanted you to know, when we look at circumstances, we often become distressed. And when we look within for comfort, we often get depressed. But if we'll look up to Jesus during life's hardest test, He'll fill our hearts with peace and He'll set our minds at rest. So when life's coming at you and you don't know what to do, just lift your eyes to heaven. God will always see you through. When life gets chaotic and you want to be strong and bold, look up and do remember, God is still in control. Amen. That's what we do in chaos. We look up and we say, God, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But the scripture teaches that you're in control. That was the message of the angel. That's why you sent that angel down from heaven. One foot on the sea, one foot on the land. Heaven's way of saying God is in control when it looks like nobody is. And friend, if it'll be true during the tribulation, it's true now. I encourage you, take it in, think it through, and live it out, and your life won't ever be the same again. Amen? Father, take the message of this angel and seal it to our hearts. God, I thank you for this wow moment that John had when he had this vision. And God, I pray for every person listening today that in one way or another, it will be a wow moment for them that they will say, hey, what do I have to worry about? God's in control. And if God's in control, that means I can trust Him and I'm going to be fine. And so with your head bowed and eyes closed, that circumstance you're worried about, that thing that kept you up last night, that thing that's troubling you, 
Confess your faith in God. Say, God, I believe that you're in control. Can't see you. Don't understand what's happening. But I choose by faith to trust you. And so, God, make this moment a wow moment in my life so that I'll walk out of here a different person than I walked in here. I'll walk out of here with confidence and renewed faith that God Almighty is still very much in control of my life. And He will get the last word. He will get the last word on this situation. Others here today, you've never been saved. God's message for you is that you can be saved. Jesus said, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If you'll hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll receive you and I'll save you. And you can pray today, right now. Just say this, say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive all my sins. God, save me from this tribulation. Save me from hell. And God, make me the person you want me to be. Now, did you pray that prayer today? Did you say that to God? Then thank Him. Say, Lord, thank You for saving me. I trust You right now. I trust You. I receive You by faith to be my Lord and Savior. And then would you say, God, during this next song, give me the courage to come forward. Give me the courage to make this decision public, God. So that I'll never have to worry about being ashamed of confessing you openly and publicly before me. And I'll do it now, God. I'll do it now. Others, you've been saved before today, but you've not made that open confession. You ought to be the first one down the aisle during this next song. Your way of saying, I'm on Jesus' side. I'm on his team. He's in my heart. And I'm not ashamed to let it be known publicly. You ought to be the first one down. Others today, you've already done that. But you feel God leading you to join this church. Maybe one of our students. Maybe a couple here. A family here. A single adult. You feel God leading you to be a part of this family of faith. You ought to come right down this aisle. Be the right thing to do. And you'd encourage others who need to make their decisions too. Father, may there be a freedom during this next song, during these next three to four minutes, God. May we not quench the Spirit, but may we respond in obedience. In His name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, Amen and Amen.